good morning. Thanks for being here today. To those who are watching online, watching by TV, those on our Mill Creek campus, appreciate uh, you being here today. We are in a series, I, I have to be honest, I'm probably enjoying as much as any as I have done in years and years and years. How many of you have ever heard of Muhammad Ali? Just let's make sure you're awake this morning. Okay, everybody has. Widely believed the greatest boxer who ever lived. And the thing about Ali was he didn't just fight with skill. He fought with passion. And one of the things he would always do before he would fight an opponent is he would work himself up and he'd try to think of reasons why he ought to be angry with the person that he was fighting. And in his autobiography, he said something that I believe reveals a secret in a way to his success. He said, I'm a fighter. I believe in the eye for an eye business. I'm no cheek turner. I got no respect for a man who won't hit back. If you kill my dog, you better watch your cat. Well, with that, what that great boxer was expressing is what I call the revenge factor. And everybody in this room was born with the revenge factor. I was born with it. You were born with it. Nobody taught it to you. You see it in little kids. Somebody does you wrong, you do them wrong. Somebody hits you, you hit them back. Somebody messes with you, you mess with them. It's a temptation we all face. As a matter of fact, some of you right now are uncomfortable because there's somebody you'd like to get back today. There's somebody you'd like to get even with today. There's somebody that did you wrong, left you holding the bag, stuck it to you. And deep down in your heart, you kind of hope and wish that something bad would happen to them. I'm, 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 I've never told this story before, and it still embarrasses me to this day. But I only got one spanking when I was in school. Now, that ought to kind of tell you how old I am, because that's back when teachers still spank. But I'll tell you when I got my spanking. You ready for this? I was a sophomore in high school. A sophomore in high school. Let me tell you what happened. I was in an algebra class, and um, the, the teacher was Mrs. Savage, which was a very fitting name for her, by the way. And she had given us time in class to work on, our, on some homework. And what she would do is she would teach, and then she'd give you time to do your homework. And if you got your homework done, you wouldn't have to do it when, when you went home. And so she had given us some problems to work out for our homework. And uh, I was sitting there working on my, my uh, homework, and I had just finished the last problem. And I thought I was so proud of myself, I wouldn't have to take it home. I don't have to do the work at home. Well, just as I was finishing the last problem, there was a kid, good buddy of mine. His name was Steve. He walked by my desk like he was going up to sharpen his pencil, and he took his pencil and ran it right up the middle of my homework, just because you couldn't turn it in like that. So he just totally ruined all the work that I had done. And I'm going to tell you, it ticked me off. And I was so consumed with getting my revenge that I waited until he sat down. I got up to go to the pencil sharpener. I walked by him and did exactly the same thing. But I was so consumed with what I was doing to him, I did not notice that Mrs. Savage was watching me. And so uh, she, uh, you know, and as they say in football, you know this, it's always the second guy that gets caught, right? And so she said, um, uh, Mr. Merritt, uh, I need to see you. And I stood up, and she said, step out into the hallway. So her husband was the school's designated spanker. And, and, and the reason why was he took pleasure in it. He really uh, enjoyed it. 
And so, uh, by the way, his name was well-deserved as well. So Mr. Savage, bring, she calls him. He was across the hall. She calls Mr. Savage out. He makes me, puts my hand up against the wall, you know, got his paddle out. He made sure everybody up and down the hall heard my punishment. So to borrow from what Ali said, Steve got my dog, I got his cat, and the Savages brought up the rear. Now, that's the revenge factor. We're all born with it. We are all susceptible to it. Even one of the greatest kings who ever lived, a man by the name of David, was consumed and was not immune to the temptation of revenge. If you're a guest of ours today, or you're, this is your first time, we're in a series on David we're calling Life Lessons from a King. One of the reasons why we're studying David is because more scriptures devoted to David than any other character in the Bible except Jesus. And when you know that, you realize evidently God really wanted us to make sure we studied the life of this man. And today, we're going to look at what I believe may have been David's finest hour. It may be one of the greatest things that David ever did, or I might say didn't do. Because if I were to ask you the question, if you know anything about the story of David, if I were to say to you, hey, what do you think is the greatest victory that David ever won? Well, you know what would come to your mind. I mean, immediately you say, oh, there's no question about it. It was when he defeated the giant Goliath. Well, now that I've studied the passage we're going to look at today, I beg to differ. I don't believe that was David's greatest victory. I don't believe it was his greatest win. I don't even believe that was his finest hour. If you brought a copy of God's Word, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And if you don't know where that is, it's real easy to find. Go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Turn right, go about six or seven books. You'll run right into 1 Samuel 24. I believe 1 Samuel 24 records David's greatest victory. And it wasn't won on a battlefield. Believe it or not, it was won in a cave. And it wasn't a giant he was facing on the outside. <clears throat> it was a giant he was facing on the inside. Because David on this day was facing a foe that was much more formidable, much greater, much bigger than Goliath. It was that foe called revenge. You may be thinking, well, now, wait a minute. Why do you think revenge is a bigger giant than a giant? I'll tell you why. Fighting Goliath took stepping up. Fighting revenge takes stepping down. Fighting Goliath takes guts. Fighting revenge takes grace. Fighting Goliath takes might. Fighting revenge takes grace. And the story that unfolds is really unexpected. Let me tell you why you wouldn't expect to be reading this story. <clears throat> if you go back just a few chapters, David has killed the giant Goliath. Now, you would think that that would have led to parades and rewards and medals and promotions and accolades. You would think David would be on easy street, but instead, the aftermath of killing that giant cost David 10 years of living in hell. You say, why? Remember, David has slayed the enemy nobody else would fight. He has won the Medal of Honor. He's the MVP of the Israeli army. He's won the Nobel Peace Prize. He's the heavyweight champion of the world. He's become an overnight celebrity. Everybody wants his autograph. Everybody wants to shake his hand. Everybody wants to touch him. But his popularity has become a poison to King Saul. But King Saul is no longer the most respected man in the kingdom. 
Nobody wants his autograph. Nobody wants to touch him. Nobody pays a lot of attention to him. The spotlight is all on David. So David is now to Saul public enemy number one. Because remember, the man that was supposed to be king after Saul was his oldest son, Jonathan. But now there's a threat. He's no longer the next in line. David is the next in line. And David's approval rating is much higher than the king. And this poison of jealousy just so consumed Saul, he can't take it anymore. David's star was rising while Saul's sun was setting. And so blinded with hatred and burning with jealousy, Saul makes killing David the number one goal in his life. He goes to bed thinking about killing David. He wakes up thinking about killing David. All he cares about is taking David out. Now, here's kind of an interesting part of the story. Right after Saul, David kills Goliath, he's kind of in the good graces of Saul, and Saul is appreciative, at least for a while. So he makes David the chief musician in the palace. He brings David in to live in, in the palace with him because he loved to hear David playing the harp. But after a while, this spirit of jealousy and rage just consumed Saul. He was so mad at David, and he so wanted to kill David that one day, David was playing the harp, just minding his business, just trying to be good to Saul and give him some good music to listen to. And he was so angry, Saul picks up a spear and throws it at David and misses him, and he hits the wall right behind him. By the way, a word to any of you musicians out there, if you kind of play a musical instrument, if you're ever playing for somebody and they throw a spear at you, it's time to get another job. I'm just trying to kind of help you out, okay? Then Saul learns that his daughter Michael has fallen for David, and she wants to marry David. So he goes to David. He's got another idea how to get rid of David. He goes to David, and he says, David, you love Michael? He says, yes. You want to marry her? He says, yes. He said, okay, I will give you my daughter in marriage, but here's the deal. Sorry to tell you this, but it's just the way it is. You got to bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. Now, what you do with 100 foreskins, I have no idea, okay? But he says to David, if you really want my daughter, you've got to bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. Now, why does he do that? Well, here's what he's thinking. Surely, out of 100 Philistines, somebody can take this guy out. Surely, out of 100 Philistines, somebody's going to do my job for me. Well, <laughs> Saul doesn't realize just how serious and how powerful and how mighty David is. And David even doubles down and brings him 200 Philistine foreskins. Well, Saul hires a hit squad of his best soldiers. He gets out the, the Navy SEALs. He gets out the Green Berets. He said, I want you to go assassinate David in his bed. But Michael, now David's wife, finds out about the plot, and she warns David, who escapes before they even get there. Well, now Saul is so angry, he is so hot, he is so ticked off, he says to himself, you know what, if you want something done, do it yourself. So Saul says, okay, you couldn't do it, you couldn't do it, you couldn't do it, the Philistines couldn't do it, I'm going to do it. So he gets his entire army together, and he goes after David. So David's on the run, Saul is after David, wanted dead, forget alive, I'm taking David out. It is kill him on sight, Right? That sets up the story as we begin to read it. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men. The 3,000 men, I mean, he's really going to kill this guy. 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. 
Now, I've been to En Gedi many, many times. You ever get to go to Israel? I mean, it's one of the coolest places you get to go to. You have to ha actually have to hike back to where En Gedi is, and it's got beautiful springs of water, and it's got a beautiful pond, and there are beautiful, there are all kinds of caves that are there. Well, this takes place in a cave. Now, as you're going to see in just a moment, David finally has Saul in his sights. David has Saul red-handed. He can now kill Saul, end his misery, and begin his ministry at king. And for the first time in 10 years, he can go to sleep not having to worry that Saul's going to catch him and Gaul is going to kill him. He has his chance for revenge, but he didn't take it. And he teaches us why we should never take it. You're going to see three things that David did that we must do if we're going to defeat the power and win the battle against revenge. And I would just say a word to all of us listening right now. Just be honest with yourself. If you've got any bitterness toward anybody, if there's anybody you know that if something bad happened to them today, deep down you would throw a party. If there's someone that you knew you could hurt and get away with it, you need to listen to what we're going to say today. Because David realized that revenge is a poison. It's not a salve that will heal you. It's a poison that will hurt you. And so David did three things that I'm going to encourage us to do today to defeat the battle, to, to win the battle against revenge. Number one, honor the principle of integrity. Honor the principle of integrity. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the story or not, but one of the reasons why you'll read the Bible, there are some really funny things in the Bible. I mean, there really, really are. And this is an embarrassingly funny scene. So we're in 1 Samuel 24, verse 3. He, that is Saul, came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Now, there really is no polished way to put that. Um... Saul feels the call of nature. And as my little grandson Connor would say, he needs to go to the potty. Okay, he has to relieve himself. Now, I know what you're asking. First thing, first question I asked, first time I remember reading this as a little boy, and I remember thinking to myself, what does the word relieve mean? He went to relieve himself. Well, there's no other way to put it. When you go to the bathroom, you only have one of two choices. So I thought, how am I going to tell my people this? Let me put it to you this way. He was behind curtain number two, okay? So the reason why I know this is because David could not pull off what he's about to pull off if he was behind curtain number one. Now, the good news is Saul is doing something that I don't believe I read anybody else in the Bible pulling off, okay? So I thank God about, you know, for that. So what ha what's happened is Saul has taken all his clothes off. He's removed his armor. And, and so while he's kind of attending to business, he doesn't realize that David's in the stall right next to him. He, he, he doesn't know that. So here's David's chance, right? Here's the man that has been on his tail for 10 years, and now David is literally on his tail. But the situation is reversed. And there's no question if the situation were reversed, what, Paul would, what Saul would do to David. And by the way, his men knew what Saul would do if he had David in this position. So his men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They said, David, God has orchestrated this. 
This, you're never going to have a better chance. He's in the most vulnerable position you could ever be. He is totally defenseless. He'll never know it. This is your shot. And quite frankly, you fully expect David to put his sword right through Paul Saul's backside. But he doesn't. Instead, he does this. David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. You've got to ask yourself, David, why didn't you kill the guy? Why didn't you take him out? I mean, look, there's no argument. He deserved it. He asked for it. He had it coming to him. Anybody who knew the real story would not have blamed David. They would have said, you know what? I would have done exactly the same thing. If you had killed him, that's exactly what I would have done. And yet, David does this little minor thing. He just kind of cuts off a piece of his robe. You think, well, that's, you know, that's not really a big deal. But look what, look what happens to David next. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. You go, wait a minute. David, are you kidding me? Why are you so bothered? You could have killed this guy. You could have literally, and I'm, just, I'm not trying to be crude, you could have cut his guts out. But you just cut off a piece of the robe. Why are you so upset? Why are you feeling guilty? David, why didn't you kill him when you had the chance? Now watch what David does. The answer is in verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face on the ground. You see, the fact is, David recognized something. Saul is still on the throne, by the way, in more ways than one in this story. Saul is still on the throne. No, he may not be the king he needs to be. He may not be the king he should be. He may not always act like the king that he is, but there's one thing hasn't changed. He is still the king. He is still David's king. You know, there's an old saying that the customer's not always right, but the customer's always the customer. Well, the king may not always be right, but the king is still the king. Now, why is that so important? Because of what he says in verse 6. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. See, David knew something. It was against God's law to kill the king. God laid down that law. You are not to kill the king. That is something God had made plain from the very beginning. You don't dishonor the king. You don't disrespect the king. You do not kill the king. You do not murder the king. So here's David, and he teaches such a great lesson. When you're facing a choice of action in any situation, you can always know what to do. I, I'm, I'm going to listen. This, I'm going to make this so easy for you. We get into situations sometimes. We go, man, I. I just don't know what to do. Well, there's one question to always ask, and you'll always know what to do. You ready? What's the right thing to do? That's the question. What is the right thing to do? Because you know what integrity is? It is always doing the right thing. See, go back to that scene. David, Saul is relieving himself. David and his men have sneaked up there right behind Saul. They can take him out right now. And all of his men, here's what they're doing. They're reviewing their options. They're, they're, they're weighing the pros and the cons. They're looking at their circumstances. And every instinct in them, every thought in them is saying, this is our shot. This is our 
chance. They weren't even thinking about what is the right thing to do. And see, what set David apart from all of his men was he understood something. What is right is not always what we think is right. What is right is not what we always feel is right. What is right is always what God says is right. So David said, you know, I don't have to think about this. I don't have to weigh the pros and the cons. I don't have to ask myself, hey, can I get away with it? David said, what is the right thing to do? And I don't care how great the opportunity is, if you have to violate your conscience, you've got to violate God's word, it is the wrong opportunity. So let me just take a minute and kind of teach you something about how do you, how you relate to people. By the way, I really mean this. I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to you. I always do, but I really am today. There are always three roads you can take in the way you treat other people. Listen, this will be worth coming to church for. This will be worth getting up out of bed for. There are always three roads you can take in the way you treat other people. There's the low road, there's the middle road, and there's the high road, okay? Now, I call the low road, that's the satanic level. That, that's when you return evil for good, okay? That, that's the low road. When you, nobody's done you wrong, but you do them wrong. You know, you, you wrong somebody, they haven't wronged you. you. Maybe they've done good for you, but you return evil for good. That, that's the low road. And we all say, well, I, I don't want to take that road, and I, and I get that. But the road that most of us want to take most of the time is what I call the middle road. Now, the low road is the satanic level. You return evil for good. The middle road is the sensible level. You just return evil for evil. Now, and that's the, mo that's the road most people take, okay? You don't do me evil, I won't do you evil. But you do me evil, I'm going to do you evil. You know, I'm not going to hit you, but if you hit me, I'm going to hit you. It's like the two little boys that got into a fight at school, and when the teacher separated them, she said, okay, boys, what happened? And one little boy said, well, it all started when he hit me back. <laughs> and see, that's kind of the road that we take. It seems like, I mean, let's be honest. It seems like the sensible thing, right? It seems like the right thing. You hit me, I hit you. You do me wrong, I do you wrong. You mess on me, I mess on you. You, you, know, you do something bad to me, I do something bad to you. That's the middle road, and that's the road the vast majority of people take. But then there's what I call the high road. It's not the satanic level. It's not the sensible level. It is the supreme level. It's when you return good for evil. That's the high road. And Saul even admitted this. Listen to what he says in verse 17 to David. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You say, why did David do that? Why did David not do to Saul what Saul would have done to him? Why did David not do to Saul what Saul deserved, but he did to Saul what Saul did not deserve? Because he asked the question, what is the right thing to do? David took the high road. I tell people all the time when they ask me, what, what should I do about this or that? I hear, I'll say, take the high road. There's not a lot of traffic on it. A lot of traffic on the middle road, not a lot of traffic on the high road. Take the high road. David took the high road, and I just want to encourage you today, take the high road because there's not a lot of traffic on that road. Integrity is always doing the right thing. So number one, honor the principle of integrity. Now what I'm about to say next is really applicable 
to the situation we find ourselves in today in our country. Number two, you honor the position of authority. And every word there is carefully chosen. You honor the position of authority. See, another thing that kept David from taking revenge against Saul was his position. Because notice how he addresses Saul. He says it four times. In verse 8, he calls David, my master, the Lord's anointed. Verse 14, the anointed of the Lord. He says, my Lord, the king. He says, the king of Israel. Now notice, he never refers to the person of Saul. He's always referring to the position of Saul. If you're, some of you, some of you folks, and I think have been in the Marine Corps before, the, the Marine Corps has a saying, and I think it's a great saying. The Marine Corps has a saying, you don't salute the person, you salute the rank. You don't salute the person, you salute the rank. In other words, you, you, don't make, you may not always feel like you can honor the person, but you always honor the position. Listen, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I had to learn that lesson a long time ago myself. Some of you are going to remember this because you were there when it happened. It was back when uh, President Clinton was uh, embroiled in, that, in, the, in the Monica Lewinsky situation. And the whole thing had blown up. And, and I was preaching one Sunday morning right in the middle of all this. And, and I just said something about the president I shouldn't have said. I, I said something very derogatory about the president. I knew the moment I said it, I shouldn't have said it. I mean, I knew the exact moment I said it, I shouldn't have said it. Bothered me all week long. Nobody said anything to me. Nobody sent me a letter. But I knew I'd done wrong. So the next Sunday... I got up before I, I even started my sermon. I said, hey, I, I need to say a word to all of you here today. And, and, uh, and, and I want you to make sure that you tell your kids I said this. Here's what I said. In fact, I'm, this is exactly what I said. I said something last week that was completely and totally wrong, out of line, and inappropriate. I said something about the president I should not have said. He is the president of the United States, of the United States and his office deserves our highest respect, especially respect from a pastor. I ask your forgiveness, and I will double my effort to pray for the president. We've all been there. We've all done that. We've all sometimes tend to focus on the person and not the position. One of our founding fathers, the second president of the United States, John Adams, he was writing to someone who was worried about the beginning of our nation and what kind of a future we would have and whether or not we would even make it. John Adams felt like our future was exceedingly dangerous as well. John Adams wasn't sure that our nation would make it in the beginning either. And John Adams wrote this. He said, there's one thing, my dear sir, that must be attempted and most sacredly observed or we are all undone. There must be decency and respect and veneration introduced for persons of authority of every rank, or we are undone. In a popular government, this is our only way. Now, I don't ever dabble in politics. I got out of that a long time ago, and I'm not dabbling now. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make a statement that's too true for everybody. And it, but it's true about Washington. Whether it is the president of the United States or a senator or a congressman or a governor, we need to treat each other with civility. We need to treat each other with respect. We don't need to be calling names. We don't need to be questioning motives. We live in a great country where we can agree to disagree, and we should. I don't think anybody, I don't think, I, you know, except for everything that we all believe is right, I don't think, it, we should, I think it's naive to think we're going to all agree on everything. But I made even more of a conscious effort in my mind, and we, I was talking about this with a buddy of mine the other day. 
I just don't make the political personal. I used to. I used to be guilty. I don't do that anymore. I don't make the political personal. Because at the end of the day, and I, you know this is true, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who's the president. It doesn't matter which, Congress, which, which party controls the Congress, which party controls the Senate. It doesn't matter who's the governor of the state. At the end of the day, the security of our nation is in the hands of God. That's who I'll be looking to. Who I'll be looking at. And listen, if anybody ought to be setting the example, if anybody ought to be setting the example of praying for our government and praying for our leaders, I, I don't care whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent. I don't care whether you're Dr. Ford or Brett Kavanaugh. We ought to be praying for them and praying for the situation. That's what God has called us to do. It's simply respecting the position. And one of the marks of maturity is the willingness to get under authority, even though you may not always agree with that, the way that authority always acts. And David knew, Saul, you're still the king. You're, I'm still under your authority. Now, having said all that, let me just make something plain. You say, well, pastor, does that mean you, you approve of, of something of a president or a senator or a congressman or whatever when they do wrong or say wrong? Absolutely not. It doesn't mean we approve error any more than David approved. Do you speak truth to, to authority? You absolutely do. Nobody gets a mulligan for doing wrong. Nobody gets a mulligan for acting wrong. Nobody gets a mulligan for being disrespectful. But there is a way to speak in a respectful way to the misdeeds and the misconducts of any ruler, and we should. So all I'm saying is, we need to take a lesson from a man named David who was going to be king, who would become king, and honor the position of authority. Here was a man who said, you spent 10 years of your life trying to kill me, and I've done nothing wrong to you. You've even admitted to yourself, I've returned good for evil. I gave to you what you didn't deserve. But I didn't do it because of who you are, I did it because of who he is. I did it because he's the one that put you in the position of authority. So you honor the principle of integrity. What's the right thing to do? You honor the position, the, the, the position of authority. God's the one that puts one up. God's the one that puts another one down. And then here's the last thing. This is the hardest one. You honor the power of humility. Now, I want you to notice what David does, because I read it a moment ago, and I guarantee you didn't really pay much attention to it. Because you talk about going the second mile and the third mile, David does the unthinkable, right? Because at first, it was Saul that was in the most vulnerable position. And, I, and again, I'm not trying to make fun of this, but you know, Saul was relieving himself. You know this. That's about as vulnerable a position as you can be in. David, on his own, voluntarily, puts himself in an even more vulnerable position. Look what David does. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Now, folks, it doesn't get more vulnerable than that. You can't get more vulnerable. You can't get lower than that. David knew that when he put his face to that ground and he laid flat out on that ground, he was putting his life on the line. He knew Saul could now do to him what he did not and would not do to Saul. So again, David, son, you've gone the second mile and you've gone the third mile. 
why in the world are you humbling yourself before a man who is so obviously and completely out of the will of God? Why would you do that? Well, go back again, and let's read verse 6 one more time. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. It was God who had anointed Saul. It was God who had appointed Saul. David not only honored the position of authority, he honored the power behind all authority, which is God. In other words, David was not just bowing down to Israel's king. David was bowing down to the king of Israel's king. When you respect the authority that God has put in place, you respect God who put the authority in place. Because whether a ruler realizes it or not, Behind every ruler is the power of God. He is always the power behind any power. And as one great communicator put it, never try to replace what God has put in place. Never try to replace what God has put in place. That is, don't try to dethrone what God has enthroned. And so David was not just humbling himself before Saul. He was humbling himself before God, because David finally realized something. You know what? If God is the one that put you in, God ought to be the one to take you out. If God is the one that has enthroned you, he ought to be the one to dethrone you. Now, let me just stop right here and make a clarification. I want some of you, some of you are thinking, and, and I'll be thinking the same thing, so keep in mind. What we're dealing here with is personal revenge. What we're dealing here with is doing evil for evil. We're not talking about a ruler like Adolf Hitler, who, for example, was not on a personal vendetta against just one person who had done nothing wrong. He was on an evil, political, spiritual vendetta to wipe out entire races and to subjugate an entire world. This is that's a totally different animal. We're dealing here with one man who hated another man for no reason. We're dealing here with one man who had every right to take revenge on another man who had done him wrong. And the spirit of humility that David had found had is, it found, is, the, is, is found in the most important thing of anything that he said. Listen to what David said. He said, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Now, now draw it real close, pay attention. This, this is the most impactful part of what I'm about to tell you. When you make up your mind, you're going to get revenge on somebody. When you make up your mind, you hit me, I'm hitting you. You mess with me, I'm messing with you. You did me wrong, I'm doing you wrong. When you make up your mind, I'm going to return evil for evil. Here's what you just did. You just took matters into your own hands. That's what you did. The only way now listen to this. The only way you can return good for evil is when you say, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to trust the matter into God's hands. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to trust the matter into God's hands. See, here's the difference between pride and humility. 
Pride is when you take matters into your own hands. Humility is when you trust matters into God's hands. Matter of fact, let me tell you something. You know why revenge is an insult to God? Revenge is an insult to God because when you take revenge on somebody, here's what you're really saying. I don't believe you're a God of justice. I don't believe you're a God that holds people to account. I believe if I don't do something, you're going to let him get away with it. So since you're probably going to let him get away with it, I'm not. Listen to me. Nobody ever gets away with God with anything, ever. God is plenty capable of taking the revenge if revenge is what is needed to be taken. So what you need to do is don't take matters into your own hand. Trust the matters into God's hand. Because by the way, something I tried to teach my boys growing up, our job is not to get even with anybody who does us wrong. And I'll tell you why. It's not only not our job, you can't do it. Because when you get even with somebody, you just brought yourself down to their level. The way to stay ahead of somebody is not to do evil to them. The way to stay ahead of somebody is not to take revenge on them. By the way, even Saul realized that's exactly what David did. Listen to what he says to David. You're more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man fights his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Do you know what Saul just said to David? What Saul said to David was, I tried to drag you down to my level. And now I know what I need to do is I need to come up to your level. So the central lesson to learn about the revenge factor is this. Someone may choose to be your enemy, but you don't have to choose to be their enemy. Someone may choose to be your enemy, but you have to choose to be theirs. And by the way, even pastors have their share of enemies. I've made my share. There are people out there that don't like me. There are people out there that don't care about me, and that's okay. I cannot choose how people look at me. I can choose how I look at people. I, I cannot choose what people do to me. I can choose what I do to people. Saul had made David his enemy. David said to Saul, I'm not making you my enemy. And see, this is the story of a man who is being treated like a criminal, but he acted like a king. And a man who was a king, but he acted like a criminal. And the whole point of the story was not what David could have done to Saul. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is what David did do for God. Because the reason why he didn't take revenge on Saul was twofold. Number one, he realized who had put Saul in the position he was in. And number two, he realized vengeance belongs to him. It doesn't belong to me. So let me just wrap this up. You know what humility is? You know, you know humility is kind of a hard thing to get, get your hands around, right? I mean, you, you know, one of the things, don't, don't ever do this. Don't ever brag to people about how humble you are. 
Okay, I mean, you, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's kind of a slippery thing, you know. I, I heard about a guy that was in a church and uh, been going to church for a long time. And this church voted the man the most humble person in the church and gave him a medal. And the next Sunday he wore it and they took it away from him. So, you know, you can't, it's just hard to get there, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of a slippery thing. So I thought about it. I said, what, what do you mean by humility? And it, it hit me. This is what David did. Really? Humility is taking yourself out of the way so God can get in the way. Humility is taking yourself out of the way so God can get in the way. Now think about this. We'll, we'll be done. Everything I've told you about David in this story was true on steroids about Jesus. He always did the right thing, right? Jesus always did the right thing. He honored the principle of integrity. He always did the will of his heavenly father. He honored the position of authority. And Jesus honored the power of humility because even when he was on the cross, he did not take things into his own hands. He trusted everything into God's hands. And with the Jesus that lives in us, we can do the same. So I close with this. If anybody ever had a right and would have been right to take revenge, it is God on the human race. We, he sends his son. He sends his son. And what do we do to his son? Beat him. Mock him, spit on him, crucify him totally naked, humiliate him, turn our back on him. And what does God do for us? He says, even though what you did to my son, if you'll come to that son, he will forgive you and he will save you. And the Jesus that lives in us can enable us to do the same for others. Let's pray together.